One of the things that I find um, interesting in our country is the amount of times you hear the word abuse being mentioned. Uh, there are many people that uh, really report all sorts of abuse that occur in a family setting, that, that occur maybe in a school setting, that occur in, in a job situation even. Uh, anything from physical abuse to emotional abuse uh, to, to many times even sexual abuse. And a lot of those things, they're reported, they're, they're mentioned. And what tends to happen is when those things are reported or mentioned, most people that are guilty or found guilty of those things, um, they don't even want to admit that they've done those things. Many of them will outright reject that that has been going on. And what ends up happening is the more frequently that occurred in their life, the more they gave themselves an out that this wasn't really what they were doing. What tends to happen in the Christian faith is something very similar. Though we would not view it the same way, we take God's grace and we abuse it. We take what God's given us, we take the forgiveness of sin, and we abuse it by sinning more frequently. If you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We're going to be looking at specifically the abuse of grace. The abuse of grace. And we're going to be looking specifically at three different things here in this text. We're going to be looking at, number one, legalism will enslave. Verses 1 through 4, and verses 7 through 12. Number two, that freedom can be dangerous. Freedom can be dangerous. Verses 13 through 15, and verses 19 through 21. And number three, that grace is divinely enabled. Verses 5 through 6. 16 through 18, and verses 22 through 26. Let's begin with number one. Legalism will enslave, verses 1 through 4 and 7 through 12. The text says this, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Drop down to verse 7. You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you. In the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the, Christ, the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Paul starts off the book of Galatians here telling the churches in the region of Galatia. This would be almost like someone writing to the churches in New England, if you will, that the gospel must not be manipulated or changed to the person that's hearing it. In fact, he goes on to say in, in, in the first part of Galatians that if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel, let that person be damned. Ultimately, anathema. This letter was written primarily to counteract the teachings of the Judaizers. In fact, the Judaizers believed that the Gentiles, those that were outside the Jewish community, when and after they became Christians should also live like the Jewish people. 
And they specifically believed that they should follow the Mosaic law, the customs and traditions. In fact, Judaizers didn't so much deny that a Gentile could not be saved, they made sure that circumcision was part of the process. If you were circumcised after having received Christ, that's what made you a true believer or true disciple of Jesus Christ. That would be what qualifies you. In fact, the epistle to the Galatian teaches us a few things. That first of all, God's saving grace and mercy through Jesus Christ excludes all the works of the Mosaic Law, customs and traditions. It excludes, excludes all works towards things that motivate us in gaining salvation. Specifically, the letter to the Galatians teaches us that if salvation could be attained as a result of good works, then Jesus suffered in vain for us. However, the epistle to the Galatians does, does teach us that salvation by faith alone does not mean that a born-again believer should not perform good works. That does not negate that. It does teach, though, that good works towards others are to be accomplished as a result of faith and love for God, and hence a love for others. In fact, one of the things that we see, James talks about this as well, we talked about this last week, good works are a result of a born-again believer. We are called to be doers of the word. And most of us know that the Holy Spirit wants to work certain things in our lives, and we constantly resist against those things because we tend to find ourselves building up our own righteousness as to what the standard for God is. And we'll talk a little bit more about that here shortly. Galatians teaches us that God has actually come for all people, not just the Jewish nation. His, his goal was ultimately to reach the nations of the earth. His, his special people, Israel, were to be a demonstration to the other nations of who God is. There's a threefold attack, though, that's interesting that the Judaizers launched against Paul here. And this is when, when I'm looking through some of the commentators and ultimately back, Bible background. One of the things that they mention is his authority as an apostle. They went after his authority as an apostle, going after his character or position, if you will. If that's not something that you see frequently today, I don't know what is. In order to destroy someone's argument, you go after the person themselves first, right? We see that in politics going on all the time, right? People will throw an argument, this person's like this because they are like this. That's why everything else they say is invalid. That's the first line of defense a lot of people have in attacking the second one is that the gospel Paul preached was not enough. Paul, you preach the gospel, but that's not enough. Grace alone through faith alone is not all there is. Because in the, the third point of attack was Paul's teaching on the law would automatically lead to immorality. Look, Paul, if you're not going to put people under the law, then they're just going to do whatever they want. So you're not... You're not preaching the true gospel, you're literally just pre preaching license. Paul was telling them a life lived out in faith apart from the law was enough. Just as it is with anything in life, believer, balance is important and key. If we don't have balance, we, e we very easily bring unnecessary pain in our lives to ourselves and others. For example, if we overeat, right? we'll have health problems. If we undereat, we'll have health problems. So it's not one or the other. Both will do damage. Balance is very important. As we've said before, if we nail people with the truth, but we don't show it in grace, we're out of balance. 
And the grace that we're supposed to give a person, we need to be constantly aware of. If we're just being gracious without sharing truth, then that grace is negated because grace has truth attached. Here Paul's talking about the balance, if you will, in the Christian life. And Charles Riley makes out this point. He says, living apart from law and living apart from license or the freedom to sin. Those are the things that Paul is really trying to get the church to understand. Paul tells them in verse number one to not return to the slavery of the law, which would be the law of Moses. Now, when we say the law of Moses, what do we mean by that? Because this is important. That there are definitely differences in what people believe Paul is talking about here. You see, many Christians have split over this point that Paul makes here. One group believes that the law can be categorized by two groups, two groups or categories, if you will. The Ten Commandments, the moral law, and the ceremonial, which would be the cleansing, um, the sacrifices, circumcision, you name it, keeping the feast. Paul is saying, keep the moral law, you don't have to worry about the ceremonial law. The second, second view in the second group, which is really the one I hold to, um, believes that the law refers to the whole thing as one unit, which means that Paul is saying that we are no longer bound or under the obligation of either the moral or the ceremonial law, which if you look throughout the New Testament, this is where uh, the argument's made, well, so you don't believe the, New Te the, the Ten Commandments apply to believers anymore. Oh, no, they don't. Jesus raised the bar. <laughs> he went even higher than the Ten Commandments. When, he, when, when, when a person would say, hey, I didn't commit adultery, Jesus goes, but you've lusted in your heart. That's at that level. You see, this is the problem with the way people see the New Testament, is they don't understand the old, and that's why they misinterpret the new. That's why it's important to understand that when Paul makes a statement, he's taking it all as one unit. He's not separating it the way we would like to sometimes cleanly in our Western way of thinking. So Paul actually is telling the Galatians to fulfill the law of Christ. In fact, she talks about it in Galatians chapter 6, if you were to read ahead. If we're to be technical, the Ten Commandments have been done away with, with nine of them being reemphasized in the New Testament. The debated one is the Sabbath. And what's interesting is throughout uh, the New Testament, especially the book of Acts and beyond, in fact, there's a statement that said, don't judge others on the Sabbath. So it's not one of those things that you really can nail down the way you did in the Old Testament. The importance of gathering, though, is emphasized in the New Testament, believers. So if you're saying, hey, the Sabbath doesn't apply to me, um, the book of Hebrews, who's written, which is written to Hebrew, which is Jewish believers, encourages them strongly to continue to gather together. So... Paul here is telling the Galatians to stand firm in the freedom they've received by Christ and to not go back to the law of Moses to complete what was already completed. When Jesus makes the statement, I have come to fulfill the law, he did that. He didn't come to fulfill the law so that you can add to it again. He fulfilled it. When he said it was finished, it was finished. Everything that the Father had placed as the standard that was required was completed by Christ. All of it. There was nothing else that needed to be added or done by you and me. It was all finished by Christ. And that's what Paul's driving at here. In fact, what Paul says here is important to point out. In verse 1 he says, don't get caught up in the law thinking that's what's missing in your salvation. In verse 2 he says, if circumcision for non-Jewish people is important that makes the gospel worthless. It's, the gospel's worthless. 
In verse 3, if you want to follow the law, you better keep the whole thing. You want to be a precision person, you need to keep the whole thing. And that's the only way you'll attain it, which is impossible for all of us. You just broke it yesterday, many different ways. And many of those things were done without you even realizing it. If you're trusting, verse 4, if you're trusting your ability to follow the law, you are fallen from grace. You've lost what unmerited favor is, believer. You've lost what unmerited favor is. That's what grace is. In verses 10 through 10, 7 through 10, he says, You have to be careful that others don't hinder your walk with Christ by adding unnecessary regulations on you, telling you that if you don't follow these things, the gospel message is not enough. The gospel message is enough, believer. Christ died, was buried, rose again the third day. That's the gospel in a nutshell. You don't need to add anything to it. And to be frank with you, when the disciples that became disciples ultimately um, after Peter preached the sermon in Acts, none of, none of the text implies that everybody repeated a prayer after Peter. Okay, None of that is implied. That's a Western construct that we pulled into our culture and said, repeat after me. Uh, just to give you an idea of what Pastor Roman thinks of sinner's prayer, that would be the equivalent of me getting into a fight with my wife and someone telling me what I need to repeat to her. Wouldn't go well. It wouldn't be genuine. Your relationship with God has to be your personal relationship with God. You have to talk to him directly. You have to believe and trust him completely. Nobody comes between you and me and the Father, if you will, besides Christ. He's the only one. He's the mediator between God and man. None of us have that access. I can't pray on your behalf or tell you, here's a prayer to repeat, and now you'll have saving faith. That is something that is done of the Holy Spirit in your life. So in verse 11, he says, if some are falsely saying that I'm preaching circumcision is necessary for salvation, why do Jewish people still oppose me? Paul makes a point there. If, if, if some are saying that I'm, I'm telling them that circumcision is required, then why are the Jewish people against me on this? You have to understand, this is a big point of contention for the Jewish people. When Paul told the Gentiles, circumcision is not what it's about, the gospel message is Christ and him alone. Jewish people got really offended by that. Because to them, they found themselves in a different status. They were circumcised and they believed Jesus. They were better in some way. And Paul's saying, no, the gospel, it balances the scales and circumcision isn't the qualifier. In verse 12, Paul actually goes pretty intense here um, and tells the Galatians, if the Judaizers think circumcision is what counts, they might as well castrate themselves. Yeah, that's in the Bible. Aren't you glad you came this morning for a sermon? So, great. Legalism that Paul's talking about here doesn't really relate to me, right? Like, I, I, don't, I don't think any of us in here have really discussed circumcision as the requirement, right, for salvation, in our church at least, in that context. But I'd say that there are certain things that we sometimes inadvertently do to say that are required for salvation without even realizing that we do that. In fact, legalism is being concerned with keeping the law of God as a means of eternal favor with God. I care to do what God's word says without any concern about God, only myself. Meaning, I'm going to do the commandments because of the benefit it's going to offer me. Not because I love God. A real heart check, because many of us do things so we're good Christians, right? 
who are a good disciple of Jesus, instead of loving our Heavenly Father for who He is and how He's loved us by giving us Jesus Christ. Some examples of legalism that Christians have added to salvation are, first one, you must give to the church. Oh yeah, there's a lot of churches that have preached this throughout the centuries. If you are not giving to the church of God, you have no place with God. Do your homework. Stunning how much this has permeated the church. Many churches have guilt-tripped disciples of Jesus in order for them to be right with God, they need to give to the church of God. Now, let me pause for a second. We do appreciate anyone that gives, okay? So please don't take from this sermon, hey, Pastor Roman says we don't need to give anymore and we don't want to give anymore. Great. Obviously, the work of God needs to continue, but it's not a requirement for salvation. Does that make sense? If you're a child of God, you will want to give. But it's not the finishing touch, if you will, to the gospel message, okay? Jesus is enough. Jesus paid it all, okay? Everybody tracking? You must attend fill in the blank. This is another one that a lot of us do without paying attention and realizing. I know I've caught myself doing this many times. I really have. This is a subtle one, right? Because though many would say, no, I don't believe going to church is what saves me, what do we do sometimes when someone doesn't attend something? Love the Lord. I don't know. I haven't seen him in two weeks. He might not be saved. You know, we need to be careful when we say real Christians do this. There are many of you that know exactly what it is to be in this spot where you don't want to attend church, you don't want to be around believers, and you've been away from the family of God for a while. You weren't any less saved. You were still saved. You were still a follower of Jesus. You were just straight up backslidden for a while. You didn't want anything to do with God. You didn't want anything to do with his family. So does scripture tell us that those that go out and don't come back, they might not be genuine believers? Of course it does. Of course it does. But the goal is not to make that a requirement for salvation. Does that make sense? Like that's not the requirement for salvation. You attended Sovereign Grace Church, congratulations, you must be saved. That's not the requirement. So we need to be careful there. Another example of legalism in the church today, you must look or behave a certain way. This is a big one. I'm, I'm sure any of us that have gone to different churches growing up or throughout our lives, we know that different church cultures are different, right? One church expects you to dress like this, and another church expects you to dress like that. And one church says, all rock music is of the devil, and another church plays rock music in church, all right? So we have, we have a, a gambit that is very wide on this one. What's interesting, though, is that Scripture tells us not to be conformed to this world, right? In Romans chapter 12, Paul makes a statement, don't be conformed to this world, but be renewed, ultimately by the Word of God. I've always asked myself this question growing up. Maybe you haven't, but I have. You know, what, what, what is a Christian haircut, right? Like, What's, what's a Christian haircut, like, compared to the world's, right? Because I'm supposed to be conformed to Christ and to the Word, and what does that mean? Does that mean, like, a mohawk is off limits and, you know, spiky hair? Eh, it could be interpreted different ways. And then the comb-over, which I went to Pensacola Christian College, so that was, like, the popular thing there. Go look it up. It's pretty hilarious. Um, like, everybody had the comb-over all the time, 
right? And that was the requirement. See, I don't know. I, I still don't understand the, the Christian clothes that we have to come up with that would be like the wear, the wear of a disciple of Jesus. Like, this is what you ought to wear. Obviously, everybody knows biblically modesty is inappropriate and God is against. Uh, mod, modesty is appropriate and mod, immodesty is inappropriate. Make sure I get it right. Um, and yet, you know, many times a lot of Christian things that we do, particularly in the church, we add to what Scripture says. So we put these, like, requirements up, right? Like, you need to do this. You have to dress this way for church. Like, culturally speaking, you go to a church in Africa, they're not wearing a suit and tie. They just aren't. I hate to break it to the Baptists that have been pounding that one for years. They have their African attire. And I'm sorry. I know there are good Christians that mean well, but I just can't take the cheesy Christian T-shirts. I really can't. I really can't. I'm sorry. Like, things like got Jesus instead of got milk, right? Like, may the Lord be with you. I mean, I'm sorry. I love Star Wars, but no. No, okay? Like, this was one that, I mean, I have the shirt, but I don't, I don't have this version of the shirt because this one's pretty lame. The struggle is real, but so is Jesus. Anyways, and then true story, bro, and then my favorite of all of them, instead of Lord of the Rings, Lord of all things. I mean, come on. Sorry for those of you that like it. It's not a sin to wear those, but uh, I just can't. I really can't. I know it's a conversation starter, but Abercrombie and Fitch are bread and fish. Like, I'm sorry. No. You know, like, I can't. I can't do it. This is one of those things that culturally many a disciple of Jesus would differ on, right? With, with looks and preferences. And sometimes those things are not in, in and of themselves sinful in your preferences. So, those are the things that we need to be careful that we're not adding as a, as a requirement or a means of salvation to people and saying, hey, you need to be like this, and then you really are a disciple of Jesus. That's one of the reasons why I don't give people um, Pastor Roman's list of music that's approved. Like, I just don't do that. Why? Because if I give you a list, here's what you should listen to, somebody's going to come back and go, hey, I don't think that's right, and we're going to have a war over Pastor Roman's list of music. And I've seen this in churches all the time. So-and-so said, this is all that you should listen to. This person says, this is what you should listen to. Like, country's good, rock music's bad. Listen, in both, they talk about inappropriate things. Okay? It's not like rock is the only one that does it. Country has plenty of that stuff. I'm sure you've heard the whiskey and frisky stuff, all right? It's in there, all right? It's inappropriate as well. If we're to just give people a list of what God requires of them that's really our own, that's legalism. If we're to just give people, here, here, here's what it looks like. Here's a list of pastor-approved music for you and your children. Can you imagine? Here's the truth. A lot of churches do that. I don't know if you knew that. A lot of churches will say drums. And I ask if they've read Psalms at all. One of my favorite verses is praise the Lord with a loud voice and a loud noise. Shout. Some of us are a little too Baptist over the years. We haven't had as much excitement. That was one thing Dan Janicki always told us. Like, why does it always have to sound like a funeral? I get it. I get it, Dan. You're enjoying it right now, brother, okay? You can shout at the top of your lungs. As one author points out here, though, 
One of the tragedies of legalism is that it gives us the appearance of spiritual maturity when in reality it leads a believer back into a second childhood. That's one of the reasons why some people, when they get caught into legalism, they're the same kind of person for years. They have the same standard, you know, King James, do or die. And that's it. Like, that's their big argument every time. They, they will not discuss anything else. They won't think through the nuances of all the culture. And what ends up happening is many times we get caught in legalism without even realizing it. We get caught in legalism very easily. And the reason why we get caught in legalism real easily is that we have a different standard than somebody else. And we think our standard is the right one and theirs is unbiblical. How many of you have ever done that? How many of you have ever been around somebody that listens to different music than you and you absolutely judged them and didn't want to tell them? I can't believe you listened to that trash. How could you? Here's my stash over here. I mean, have we done that? Or, 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 or movies, right? Like, this is a big one. And I think the church really needs to be careful here. We have to be very careful. Like, there was a, that was a big stance for a lot of churches, especially in the early 90s and 80s, especially. You know, don't you dare go to the movie theater. That's a sin. Like, what is, the, where are you pulling that from the Bible? Don't be conformed to the world. Okay, but you t have a TV in your house. How is that any different? Well, I'm not there in person. You're still paying for cable. You're providing for the same people. Paul's getting at here is the importance of freedom in Christ is what's at stake. But what does he mean when he says we have freedom in Christ? He says stand fast in the liberty that Christ has set us free. Does it mean that I can do whatever I want now since the law no longer applies to me in that same way? Well, let's look at how freedom can be dangerous. Look at number two. Freedom can be dangerous, verses 13 through 15 and verses 19 through 21. Look at what he says. He says, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Jesus has set us free. Does that mean we just get to sin freely? Is that what Jesus has set us free for? Absolutely not. Paul here is telling them that now that because the law is no longer binding in a way of salvation, it does not mean that there are things that God does not command that you ought to do. You see, we have to be careful. Because we are not, those things are not a requirement, if you will, for salvation, it does not mean that some of those things should not be done. You see what I mean? 
Because giving is not a requirement for salvation does not mean that I am now a stingy person. Does that make sense? In fact, what's interesting is Paul specifically says here, and he goes back in Romans 6 and says this, grace is not to be abused. You can't take God's grace and abuse it, but yet we do it. He said something very similar there. Should we continue in grace that grace may, in sin that grace may abound? You realize, believer, when you came to saving faith, that your sins were paid for past, present, and future. You know what the wrong response to that is? I can do whatever I want. Grace is covering all that. There's more grace because I've been freed from more sin. I've been forgiven of more. So I can just live it up, do whatever I want, right? You didn't understand grace. I didn't understand grace. Paul's saying that the freedom you have in Christ is one to live for him, not for you to return to the sin that you were delivered from. What did Jesus actually rescue you from? Sin. So what makes you think that going back to sin is the right response? It's not. You see, legalism enslaves because it adds to the gospel. But license or antinomianism, which is a rejection of all scriptural ethics and practices, does as well by keeping a person believing that nothing they do matters since God will forgive them anyways. Ultimately negating what Christ died for. Three-letter word, sin. What Paul does here is list the things that do not belong in a disciple of Jesus' life and are actually a mark of those outside the kingdom. Does that mean that believers do not struggle with these things? Yes, they do. What a non-believer does is they live these things. Divine love has always been the reason that we do not sin, believer. So if the word love is used as an excuse for sin, it is no longer love. God is love. He gets to define what love is. Talked about that back in our love series. The world doesn't get to define that. Not a single person on this earth gets to define love apart from how God himself has revealed it. And that includes the word in all its different types. Agape, phileo, storge, God defines love for us because he is love. He's the standard. The standard doesn't get to just change based on the person we're talking to. That's why moral, moral relativism is very dangerous in our society. So what are things that we, those that are followers of Jesus, need to be a guard, a guard against then willingly give in? And I'm going to break them down, and I, and I looked at multiple commentaries, and I'll tell you, Constable just really broke these down well. So I'm going to follow a lot of his pattern here. The first category, sexual sins, verse 19. Verse 19, first one is adultery, to break a marriage vow of fidelity, separation of marriage. The second thing is fornication, all types of forbidden sexual relationships multitude of different things that, that, that really we could speak on here, but it's really anything outside of what God has designed between a man and a woman in marriage. Uncleanness has the idea of moral uncleanness in thought, word, and deed. 
Lewdness. This is one word that a lot of people don't know much about, and they don't realize that a lot of cultures practicing this word all the time. What lewdness is, is open, shameless display of sin. When somebody says, it's not enough that I participate in a certain sin, I need a group to show everybody that we're participating in this sin. And we're going to shamelessly display this for all our culture to see that we're proud of the fact that we're sexually sinning before God. It's perfectly fine. I expect to get blowback on these kind of things when I speak on this. Because this is culturally what's accepted in the church now. Churches that accept this stuff obviously are not interpreting Scripture correctly at all. And then they do, what they do is they misinterpret a lot of these words. Oh, that's not really what he meant. It meant in a pagan sense when they were doing things. Hey, listen, guess what you live in? A Christian nation? No, you actually are in a pagan nation, whether you believe it or not. Just because we have some biblical principles that this country has had does not mean that we're a Christian nation. If Christians were such a powerful influence, why is abortion so prevalent? Please. We used to think Hitler was the horrible guy. How could he kill all the Jewish people? How could he, how could he co commit all those abortions there? Guess what? We imported it here, and we're performing that at a greater rate now than he was. So why does Paul actually begin with those as a list? Because they're very prevalent in his time, just as they're prevalent in our time. They're the things that stick out like a sore thumb. There's so much evidence in the pagan background that the Galatians had come from that there were all these things that were sanctioned in the cities that they were in for pagan worship. The second category is religious sins. Verse 20, idolatry. It's a worship of anything but God and the practices associated with that worship. We all have the tendency to worship other things besides God. That's not just a tendency unbelievers have, that's a tendency we may have as well. Sorcery, another word for witchcraft, pharmakia, attempts to aid the powers of evil and practices associated with that. You need to be careful, believer, what you are under the influence of outside the word of God. Anything that you are taking as medication or anything to alleviate stress or tension in your life can be a means by spiritual influence, and you need to be careful of that. Need to be careful of that. I'm not against medication. I don't believe the Bible speaks against medication per se. But the Bible does speak on not being under the influence of something else but then the Holy Spirit. You gotta think long and hard what that means. Societal sins, verses 20 and 21. Hatred, quarrels, hostilities. Think that's going on in this country? Guess what, believer? We're going to get involved in that. Now, standing up for the truth does not mean that you have to hate everybody. But goodness, man, speaking the truth in love, you need to still speak the truth. Contentions, strife, discord, variance, jealousy, emulation. This is self-centered self animosity, losing what one already has. We are jealous when someone's attention resources are given to someone else that may have belonged to us. Outbursts of wrath. Bits of rage. My goodness, man. That does not describe 2020 with a lot of people. 
We're going to march for justice and burn everything down. Totally makes sense. through that one. Selfish ambition, strife, factions, selfishness, putting others down to get ahead. You want to know why scripture talks about this? It's not because just the world deals with this. People in the church do as well. This should not be a mark of a disciple of Jesus though. You should not be pulling others down so you can get ahead of them. In fact, Scripture says to humble yourselves in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. Dissensions, another word, divisions, seditions. This is interesting. The Greek word has an idea of disputes over issues or personalities. The Bible doesn't apply to 2020. Kidding me? If anybody actually read the Bible and studied it, they'd see how apropos it always is. Goodness, I just saw that in the news yesterday. Shared on my Facebook post, and somebody responded. And guess what happened? A dispute over an issue of personality. I don't think our president fits that category, right? Heresies. Factions. A party spirit. Divisions also over issues of personalities, but this one has more of a, you're separating into certain groups, and you're, you're pushing people astray by something that's off. Another word, envy. You see, what's interesting is most of us, we, we kind of mix envy and jealousy. Envy has more of the wrong desire to have another's possession. This is def- different from jealousy, which is something that someone else has that was ours originally, that we want back. So when you're jealous of, of the love that someone has for someone else that you've already, you had a connection with before, that's truly jealousy. I know they can be used interchangeably, so I'm not gonna parse this out for you, but there is a slight difference there. And then the last word is murders, which is, very frankly, slaughter. What do you think we do in our country right now? With unborn babies. You wanna tell me any believer that says abortion is fine? really understands Galatians 5? I don't understand pro-life people that think it's fine to com- support abortion, folks. I don't get it. I really don't. This is possibly in connection to envy. Another group, intemperate or out-of-control sins. These kind of grow, if you will. In verse 21, drunkenness. Drinking bouts. This is excessive use of intoxicants. Believers, you need to be very careful that you do not drink too much if you have anything with alcohol. You don't want the reputation that the world has on this. This does not belong in the believer's life. Revelries. The idea is orgies, parties involving excessive eating and drinking. This is where people are out in full lust doing whatever they want. Let me put it this way, folks. If you think what Epstein has done is horrible, realize that this has been going on throughout history, and it shouldn't be a shock to you. And guess what he finishes with? And the like. Any other sins like these that you can think of that don't warrant an explanation? 
huh, bestiality comes to mind. I don't know that he needed to include that in the list. Because when God puts a list, there's always the person that looks at the list and says, ah, this one's not there, so I'm okay to do this. You know people like that, right? Huh. Doesn't mention this. One of the reasons why when people say, hey, you know what, Jesus said nothing about homosexuality, I straight up say you're wrong. Here's why. Jesus says marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the standard. Outside of that, everything else is wrong. He does speak on it, believer. But don't buy into that lie and garbage that people say, Jesus never spoke against it. Jesus told you what marriage was, and that's what, how it's defined. Anything outside of what Jesus said is no longer what Jesus said. That's you reading into it. That's the problem. A lot of believers think cultural sins are fine because we're doing something different now than we did 100 years ago, 200 years ago. Hey, look, God doesn't say anything about experimenting with my sexuality. That's not listed here, right? Like, if we want to be technical, right? God doesn't specifically mention certain sins that are very prevalent today. God must be perfectly fine with it, right? Because it's not in the list. Anytime someone makes that argument, usually the other sins are also present in their life. I'm going to be honest with you. There are a lot of sexual sins that people commit. Most of those things that people want to promulgate in our culture and say, this is all fine, God is okay with it, most of those things are from a heart that continually does all these other sins as well. So when someone says, hey, you know, categorically, Pastor Roman, it's not there. That, that is not listed here. So, so, so we're okay to do this. Well, I don't know. Let's go back to love. What does that mean? If you don't understand God's view of love, then you're not going to get the rest of this. We need to realize something very particular, though. Grace is divinely enabled. That's what makes it different from anything else. It's divinely enabled. Number three, grace is divinely enabled. Verses 5 through 6. 16 through 18, and 22 through 26. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of resurrection of the righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything, but faith working through love. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And down to verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passion and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Paul specifically is telling us that there's a war going on in each of our hearts. And I know we're out of time, so I'm probably going to finish this next week.